If you would, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. As we continue working through the Gospel of John this morning, we'll be in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him, because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, he said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? But he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves. Having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when he saw that the when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've been here in the Gospel of John, but we left off a couple of weeks ago at the end of chapter 5. And chapter 5 was a very remarkable chapter, just to refresh our memories. Jesus had healed that man at the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem and had made some very remarkable claims for himself. A claim to be the Son of God, a claim that he was worthy of the same honor which was given to God the Father, a claim that it was his voice that would give life to those who were spiritually dead, a claim that it was his voice that would raise the dead out of their tombs on the last day. He made the claim that he was going to be the judge on the day of judgment because the Father had given all judgment to him. And then Jesus provided support for these claims by appealing to certain witnesses. He appealed to the witness of John the Baptist. He appealed to the witness of the miraculous works that he himself was performing, and he appealed to the witness of God the Father given in Scripture. It's a remarkable chapter, chapter 5. John doesn't tell us what the response was of these opponents after Jesus had said all of this. Because remember, Jesus' opponents there in John chapter 5 were seeking to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was making himself equal with God by claiming to be the Son of God. Now, it would be interesting to know what the response was, but evidently it's not for us to know. John now shifts the narrative to some point chronologically later in the ministry of Jesus. Those words in verse 1 
after these things. We don't know precisely how much after these things it was, but we know nevertheless that it was later in the ministry of Jesus. He had gone away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He's now a long ways from Jerusalem. Chapter 5 takes place in Jerusalem. Now he's a long ways away up to the north. Uh, The north end of the Sea of Galilee would have been roughly halfway between the southern end of Galilee and the northern end of Galilee. And thus the scene is set now for the feeding of the 5,000. And this is interesting in that it's one of the few miracles of Jesus that is recorded by all four of the gospel writers. And being recorded in all four gospels, some of the other gospels give us some incidental details in regard to the feeding of the 5,000 that help kind of round out the total picture for us. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all indicate that Jesus had taken the disciples to that place there on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee to get away from the crowds, to spend some quiet time by themselves. Jesus had said to his disciples, as recorded in Mark 6.31, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. Luke specifies for us that the location was Bethsaida in Luke 9, verse 10. Matthew indicates that this had taken place after Jesus had heard about the death of John the Baptist in prison at the hands of Herod. You recall that John the Baptist had his head cut off ultimately by King Herod. Mark and Luke indicate that this had followed on the heels of when Jesus had sent the twelve out to preach and to cast out demons and to heal. as found in Mark 6 and Luke chapter 9. But, despite Jesus' intentions of going up there to spend some quiet time with his disciples, this journey to Bethsaida was not completely restful. There was a large crowd that followed him there, as we see here in John 6, verse 2. And John gives us the reason why this crowd had come. Because they saw the signs that he was performing on those who were sick. And so Jesus goes up there on the mountain and sits down. He's there with the disciples as we see in verse 3. And as Mark fills in for us, Mark 6.34, he teaches the crowd that is there with him on that occasion. He teaches them many things because he has compassion on them. Namely because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so let's consider what we, what we see here in this text of John chapter 6. And we'll do so under, under three main headings. First of all, we'll see the test. Secondly, that Jesus cared for the physical needs of people. And thirdly, we'll see an odd juxtaposition. So first, the test. Secondly, Jesus cared for the physical needs of people. Thirdly, the odd juxtaposition. And so first of all, the test Jesus is out there in this remote place teaching this large crowd, a crowd that's being harassed like sheep without a shepherd. It's getting late, people are hungry. And Jesus asks his disciple Philip the question, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? You see that question in verse 5. And Jesus asked this question, we're told, in order to test Philip. Jesus obviously already knew what he was going to do. He already knew that he was going to perform the miracle so as to multiply the loaves. But still, he asked Philip this question to test him, to see what Philip would say. It seems that Jesus wanted to put Philip in this position where Philip would have to think about things, consider the situation that they were in at that time, a situation in which he would think about who Jesus was and what Jesus 
had done in the past. It seems that Jesus wanted to put Philip into this position where he had to think about these things, and his intention was to draw out, so it seems, a response of faith from Philip. It seems that he was hoping that Philip would pass this test and he would kind of look around and say, well, Jesus, there's no place around here where we can buy as much bread as we need for these people and we don't have that much money anyways to buy it. But Jesus, surely you could do something about the situation. You've healed the sick, you've turned water into wine. I'm sure, Jesus, that you could do something about this. This, If Philip would have said that, seems that he would have passed the test. But Philip's mind evidently doesn't seem to have gotten that far. At least the utterance of his mouth does not convey that much. As far as his words were concerned, Philip seemed focused simply on the plane of what was humanly possible rather than what was divinely possible. He looks at the situation and he says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. Now, a denarius was uh, the wage that would have been paid to a day laborer for a day's worth of work. And so Philip is essentially saying that 200 days worth of average working man's wages would not be sufficient to feed everyone so that everyone could get just a little bit to eat. And in saying that, Philip's mind doesn't seem to have gone any further than, than what was humanly possible. He doesn't seem to have done exceedingly well in regard to the test. Now, it would be easy, very easy, to be critical of Philip at this point and asking why he had not been putting the pieces together better than he had. Surely he had seen Jesus do miracles. He'd seen Jesus heal people. But before we become too critical of Philip, we would do well to to look to ourselves. The fact of the matter is that the Lord often tests his people. The Lord tests us. The Lord tested people in scriptures, and we see this in scripture. We read this morning of the Lord testing Abraham. We read that passage in Hebrews 11. The Lord commanded him to sacrifice Isaac. And in that test, the Lord was putting Abraham in a situation where Abraham was going to decide, going to have to decide what he was going to do. Was he going to serve the Lord and obey him in this, in taking Isaac to prepare to offer him as a sacrifice? Or was he going to harden his heart and say, well, no, this is the child you promised me. I'm not going to do that, Lord. The Lord tests people. Lord willing, tonight we'll be beginning our series on the book of Job. Job was tested by the Lord. The Lord gave Satan some freedoms to make Job's life really hard and really painful. Job was put in a place where he had to make up his mind whether he was going to curse God and die, or whether he would hold on to his integrity and keep on holding on to the Lord despite all of the pain and all of the confusion that he was suffering. Or think likewise of that Syrophoenician woman of whom we're told in Matthew 15 and Mark chapter 7. She comes to Jesus to ask him to cast out a demon from her daughter, and Jesus says to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Jesus was putting this woman in a position where she was either going to have to press hard into Jesus and pursue him with faith and perseverance, or she could just turn around empty-handed without receiving what she had desired. And so it's this way that the Lord tests his people. And so we read in James 1, 2 through 4, 
Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that word that's used for trial there in James 1 is the same root word as what's used here in John chapter 6 when we read in in verse 6 that Jesus was saying this to, to test him or to try him. These trials or tests that come to us from the Lord, as it were, put us on the spot. You're put by the providence and plan of God into a situation that isn't easy And then you've got to decide, how are you going to react to it? Are you going to press hard into Christ and trust Him through all of the difficulty? Or, in one way or another, are you going to turn your back on Christ and refuse to trust Him? When handled rightly, these tests and trials that we encounter produce endurance in us, James says. Endurance is a a sticking to it when things get tough. These kinds of trials or tests, in other words, help us to grow when we handle them rightly. And this is why we should count it all joy when we face them. We don't naturally think that this is a joyful thing when we're put into a hard place. But the result is what should bring us joy. Indeed, we should count these trials and tests as the path of discipleship and as par for the course for the lives of the people of God here in this world. As God brings trials and tests into our lives, He refines us in the midst of those trials and tests. We learn lessons in them that we would not learn otherwise. And ultimately these turn out for our good that we be conformed to the image of Christ. Peter put it this way, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. He says, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being far more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're tested and distressed by various trials so that the proof of our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And these tests and trials come to us in an innumerable variety. Some are simply more or less perplexing situations into which we are put where what the right thing to do is not immediately apparent to us. And so we have to search the scriptures and pray and think and maybe seek some counsel. Some trials come to us in the form of challenging life circumstances. And that phrase, challenging life circumstances, I'm sure is insufficient to describe them. These types of trials can be trials such as a spouse that's difficult to get along with, a child whose behavior is very challenging, or the medical condition which you're in, which you have, for which there is no quick fix, and you're just kind of stuck with it, and you have to deal with it. Also, we could include within this category the natural disaster or the accident that comes upon you or someone that you care about and brings destruction in its wake. Sometimes trials are work-related, and we can all imagine various trials and tests that would come to us. And... Some trials are such that they can be rightly called tribulations. And so Paul speaks in Romans 5 and says that we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out 
within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And we see there in, in Romans 5, same thing that we saw in, in James chapter 1. James says, rejoice in these trials. Paul says, exult in tribulation. And why should we exult? Well, the same reason that James tells us to rejoice. Because of what the trials, what the tribulations accomplish for us. Paul says that tribulations brings perseverance. And this then changes us. It brings about proven character. In other words, after you've stood your ground by persevering through a trial, your character gets proven. You develop a certain hardiness, sticking to it. You're strengthened by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit working in you. And this produces hope because now you can see and sense how God is working within you. You can see and sense how out of weakness you were made strong in Christ and thus your hope is increased. In other words, your confidence in God is strengthened because of the way in which you've already seen God enabling you to stand and to persevere under trial. And this is the way that that God works in the midst of trials. This is the way God works when he tests us. And we can apply what Paul says to tribulations, broadly speaking, to all manner of tests and trials. Some trials are tribulations, but not all trials are tribulations. And so I won't ask you to respond out loud, won't take a poll, but think with me for a moment about what the trials are that you are facing right now. What kind of situation providentially is the Lord placing you in where he is testing you? Or maybe you can think of a test which you faced in the past. Or maybe you can think about what trials might reasonably come upon you in the future. And then think about this. How are you responding to those trials? How are you responding in those tests? Are you responding by seeking the Lord? Are you responding by pressing into Christ with prayer and faith, trusting Him, despite all of the confusion that the trial brings, despite all of the uncertainty, despite all of the misery, despite everything else that might be attached and connected to it? Are you pressing into Christ and looking to Him as your hope and your help and your strength and your rock? Or... Are you doing, in some way, the exact opposite of all of that? Kicking angrily against Christ because he has allowed these trying situations to come into your life. Now, when we're sitting together in church on Sunday morning, we know what the right answer is, right? We know that we're supposed to press into Christ with faith, with prayer, and seek by his grace to walk in obedience and humility with him. But... How's the trial going for you out in the world from day to day, week in and week out? Are you trusting or are you angry? Maybe not quite cursing God, but maybe not quite too far away from it either. Or are you perhaps a little bit like Philip here in our text, who when tested didn't really shine out in faith or become angry? When Philip was tested here, he seemed to just keep his eyes fixed on the perspective of what was humanly possible. Jesus asked him where they could get bread for the multitude, and he said that eight or nine months worth of wages wasn't going to cut it in order to feed the crowd. He had his eyes fixed exclusively, it seems, on what was humanly possible. And though he didn't get angry, he doesn't seem to have passed the test with flying colors either. So friend, learn the lesson that we are put by the Lord in situations to test us, and the right response is neither anger nor simply looking at the human horizons, the earthly horizons of the situation. The right response in any trial is looking to Christ in faith 
and seeking his help. And let it be said that the right response in a trial is not necessarily expecting that a miracle will be performed. When Jesus was on the earth performing miracles to, to demonstrate his identity as the Son of God, that's one thing. But the history of believers and even our own experience as believers does not teach us that we should be expecting a miracle. As a general rule, the Lord works by means and not by miracles. And so when I'm talking about trusting in Christ, I'm not saying that you ought to be expecting a miracle to suddenly resolve the trial and make it stop. But I am saying that you ought to let the trial draw you closer to Christ in faith and in prayer and in obedience. And the trials ought to cause you to rely more and more upon His promises. Promises like that He will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, as the text continues on here in John 6, we see in this particular case that obviously Jesus does perform a miracle. Andrew brings forward this lad who has the five loaves and two fishes, but he knew five loaves and two fish are not not going to go too far among such a crowd. But yet Jesus uses here what did exist and brought into existence more of the same, which previously did not exist. In other words, this is a this is a miracle of, of creation. Jesus created more bread, bread that did not previously exist. Jesus created more fish for these people to eat, fish that did not previously exist. And the 5,000 men who were there, besides the women and children, ate as much as they wanted, as we see in verse 11. And we find out in verse 12, almost incidentally, that Jesus was concerned about the good stewardship of these physical resources. He didn't want things to go to waste, right? He didn't want them to just be thrown by the wayside, kicked to the curb, so to speak. And there are certainly implications here for us as individuals and as families and as a church, namely that we should seek to be good stewards of the resources that the Lord has given to us and seek to use what He has entrusted to us for His glory. Now, in order for us to see what John is doing here by telling us about this miracle, it's helpful to note that John isn't telling us about the miracle simply for the purpose of showing the power of Jesus in performing it. Now, certainly the miracle does show the power of Jesus, no mistake about that. But we need to understand that John's purpose in relating this particular miracle seems to be for the purpose of setting up the conversation which follows, as uh, we'll see, Lord willing, in future weeks here in chapter 6, this conversation that takes place between Jesus and the Galileans at the synagogue in Capernaum. But even still... With that said, this miracle does point us to the identity of Jesus. It teaches us about who He is, that He is God, that only God can create. Jesus created bread and fish here. This shows us that Jesus is God. This also shows us the concern that Jesus has for the physical well-being of people. And that's our second point this morning, that Jesus cared for the the physical well-being of people. Now, as we, as we think about this, we, we need to kind of lay some parameters first. Obviously, the soul is more important than the body. This is why we find Jesus saying things like, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew ten twenty eight. This is why we see Jesus saying things like, What does it profit a man 
to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. This is why we see Jesus saying later on to these same people whom he fed here, as we find later on in John chapter 6, he said, Do not work for the food which perishes, but work for the food which endures to eternal life. Our spiritual health and well-being is infinitely more important than our physical well-being. But it does not follow from that that physical health and well-being doesn't matter at all. The concern of Jesus for these people tells us the exact opposite. Jesus didn't have to feed these people at all, but he loved them and he wanted to care for their bodies as well as to care for their souls. And we should have this concern likewise for our fellow men and fellow women here in the world. This is why Christians have historically cared about the unborn. This is why Christians historically have started hospitals. This is why James says in James 1.27, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and well filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? It's James chapter 2, and then James 1.27, he says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is why John says in 1 John 3.17 and 18, But whoever has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. The truth is that Jesus loved these people and he cared for them. And if we would be his faithful followers, we must do likewise. This is certainly not to say or imply that we can meet every need that exists in the world. We certainly can't. And so our goal must never be to try to meet every need, but nevertheless we must be clear that our Lord calls us to kindness and compassion as we have opportunity. This kindness and compassion is most of all expressed in, in evangelism, in caring for the souls of men and women. But Christian compassion also extends to the ministering to the physical needs of those who have them. And now, just to flesh this out a little bit, let me offer a few pointers and distinctions. Our first concern in this regard must be with our own family and then with our church family. And so Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.8 that if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In short, our proximity to other people has some bearings on our responsibility toward them. Paul did not say, if anyone does not provide for the person halfway around the world, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He didn't say that. He said, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And then we have some responsibilities for our extended family as well, for, for parents, uh, for instance, as is indicated in 1 Timothy 5, 4. And then expanding from there, we have a responsibility for those who are in our local church. And so we read Galatians six ten that as we have opportunity, we are to do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. In other words, those who are in the household of faith take precedence over those who are outside. But... That certainly does not exclude those who are outside. Just because there's a precedence for those inside, that doesn't mean we completely neglect those who are outside. He says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
So this is why we have a benevolence offering as a church, so that we can take care of people with needs within our own church, and so that we can take care of outsiders who uh, come to us in need of food. This is why we as a church support the Baltimore Rescue Mission and the Karis House. We support them with money and with other goods as well. And we also have some folks going down there to minister spiritually to the people there by, uh, by holding services and preaching. This is a good thing. And so another caveat and distinction is this, is that we need to be thoughtful as we seek to help others. We don't want to, in helping others or seeking to help others, actually hurt them. We don't want to encourage laziness or anything of that kind. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 that if a man is not willing to work, he ought not to eat. But we also have to be careful not to allow those cautions to prevent us from ministering to the needs of people. So Jesus had compassion on people. He ministered to their needs. And as his followers, we must do likewise. Obviously, we don't create bread and fish for people to eat. But nevertheless... We are called to minister in kindness and compassion to those who are in need. And now as we look to the aftermath of the miracle that Jesus performed there in verses 14 and 15, we find, upon consideration, a rather odd juxtaposition. And that's our third point, an odd juxtaposition. These people who were fed by Jesus on this occasion recognize that Something miraculous is at work in him. They recognize that this is no ordinary man who has just fed them. And so they say of him in verse 14, this is truly the prophet who was to come into the world. In other words, they recognize Jesus as the prophet whom Moses had prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 when he said that the Lord will raise up a prophet like me. And so they recognize that Jesus is the prophet who was to come into the world. And then in verse 15 we find that this crowd had intended to take Jesus by force and make him king. What in the world is this all about? Well, when we put together the various pieces that are given to us by the history of this region in Palestine and the accounts of the feeding of the 5,000 in the the four Gospels, we get the impression that this gathering was not simply a group of peaceful Galilean peasants out in the countryside listening to a preacher and later on enjoying a picnic. When we think of the feeding of the 5,000, we might tend to think of the way this is depicted in children's storybooks with happy and calm Galilean families sitting down and eating the loaves and the fish given by Jesus, listening to him preaching and teaching. It's far more likely, however, that this was a gathering of potential revolutionaries. Galilee had long been a hotbed of zealot sentiment with anti-Roman overtones. And now, those people who have long been looking for someone to kick out their Roman overlords have someone who could potentially fit the bill and be their messianic figurehead. Politics and revolution was likely in the minds of these people, and they wanted, as it were, to draft Jesus and incorporate him into their scheme. If they can take this man whom they said is truly the prophet who was to come into the world and make him king by force, their revolutionary zeal might actually get off the ground and go somewhere. Their hopes and dreams might be actualized. The days of quasi-independence under the descendants of the Maccabeans was over only over 90 years in the past. And they might have heard their grandparents or great-grandparents telling them stories about how the Maccabeans had defeated the Greeks They might think, aha, now we've got a chance to do the same thing to the Romans, get our independence back and get these 
overlords out of our country. Given the total picture of everything that is going on here, the reference that John makes there in verse 4 to the feast of the Passover being near might be quite significant to help us understand the mood of the crowd. As one writer expressed it, the Passover feast was to Palestinian Jews what the 4th of July is to Americans, or better, what the anniversary of the Battle of the Boyne is to loyalist Protestants in Northern Ireland. It was a rallying point for intense nationalistic zeal. And the way in which John phrases things in this account of these events, it appears that this may be the reason why Jesus withdrew to pray by himself on the mountain. We don't know for certain, but it may well be that Jesus was going away to pray, not simply to have his usual time of prayer, but that he may have felt and a special need to get away to prayer due to these kind of disrupting circumstances. And so we don't know the content of what he prayed, but he may have prayed to, so as to overcome the intentions of the crowd. And the nature of the situation may also explain the forcefulness of Mark 6.45 at the concluding of the feeding of the 5,000 when Mark tells us immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. We get the impression that maybe Jesus wanted to get the disciples out of there as soon as he could so that they didn't get swept up in the revolutionary fervor of the crowd. And we need not think that this is completely out of the question for the disciples to get so off track. After all, one of the disciples was Simon the Zealot. All of this to say that this crowd of people that met Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee was probably not simply a peaceful crowd, wanted to hear Jesus teach and see him perform some miracles. These people probably had an agenda that was much more extensive and dangerous than that. But notice in all of this the odd juxtaposition. Compare this potentially revolutionary crowd of Galilean peasants there on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee with the religious leaders back down in Jerusalem that we'd seen in chapter 5. They, in their own respective ways, both got Jesus wrong, didn't they? The leaders there in Jerusalem refused to believe the words that Moses wrote about Jesus. That was Jesus' charge against them. He said, if you believe Moses, you believe me. Moses wrote about me. Now, those Jews in Jerusalem loudly proclaimed their adherence to Moses and their allegiance to him. Yet they refused to believe that Jesus was the prophet who was to come into the world. They refused to believe Jesus' own words. They refused to believe the testimonies of Jesus' work from John the Baptist or the testimony of miracles, the testimony of the scriptures. But then on the other hand, these peasants in Galilee see the miracle and the feeding of the 5,000 and they acknowledge this man is the prophet truly who was to come into the world. Now in that sense, they were right. They acknowledged what was true when the Jews in Jerusalem refused to do so. They believed the writings of Moses, at least in this particular, and they rightly applied it to Jesus. The Jews in Jerusalem did not believe the writings of Moses and rightly apply them to Jesus. So far, so good for the Galileans. The problem for them comes in verse 15, where they decide that now that they have found the prophet who was to come into the world, they have a wonderful plan for his life. They wanted to harness him and to use Jesus for their plans. They wanted an earthly kingdom, Messiah who would liberate them from Roman oppression. What better time to put their plan into action than now? now that they have found the one that Moses wrote about. That was their false step, and that was how they too got Jesus wrong. 
They got Jesus wrong because Jesus is not that kind of a king. No doubt Jesus is a king. We spoke a couple of weeks ago from Luke chapter 1 of how Jesus is a king in that he's the son of David who would sit on the throne of his father David and will reign over the house of Jacob forever. As the angel Gabriel told Mary, Jesus is a king, but he's not the kind of king that the Galileans wanted. His kingdom, as he would later say to Pilate, is not of this world. In John 18, 36, his kingdom is a heavenly and spiritual kingdom. Now, to be sure, his kingdom has its earthly manifestations as people repent and believe and join themselves to Christ's church and submit to Christ as king. But Christ's kingdom, at his first coming, was not going to be a kingdom in the sense of a geopolitical kingdom with a king on a physical earthly throne with physical borders and a military and courtiers and so on. It's not that kind of a kingdom, and Jesus is not that kind of a king. And Jesus will have nothing to do with those kinds of plans. And so he withdrew by himself to pray. He sent the disciples on ahead of them, perhaps to get them out of that environment and keep them from getting swept off of their feet. Let this be a lesson to all of us that Jesus is king and that Jesus is in charge. If we seek to commandeer Jesus and bring him and harness him so as to serve our cause, whatever that cause may be, we're simply making the same mistake that these Galilean zealots were making. Jesus is a real king, not a puppet king. And that means that he is in charge. That means that he doesn't serve us. He doesn't serve our purposes. Rather, we must serve him and serve his purposes. You see the difference. These Galileans here and those who would follow in their wake take upon them some kind of a cause that to them is good and laudable, and then they try to make Jesus the poster boy of their cause. They try to make him the king that they want him to be. They seek to employ him to accomplish their goals. This is a mistake. Instead, Jesus has his own kingdom purposes. And it is our responsibility, therefore, to understand what his intentions are and to align ourselves with those intentions in his kingdom. Jesus himself expressed his purpose in coming this way, Mark 10:45. The Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. Paul put it this way, Titus 2:14, that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This is why Christ came, to usher in this kind of a kingdom, seeking and saving what was lost, redeeming them from every lawless deed, purifying them, and making them zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds as defined by the word of God. It's our responsibility, therefore, to to get on board with his agenda, to enter his kingdom through repentance and faith, and to serve his cause with zeal for good works. And so may God make us all such citizens in the kingdom of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that Jesus is a far greater king than those Galileans thought that he was. We praise you that Christ has redeemed us from much more nefarious forces, simply Roman overlords. Christ has redeemed us from death, from hell, and from the power of Satan and sin, and has brought us into your eternal kingdom. Father, we ask that we would truly understand who Christ is and that we would submit ourselves to him 
and never seek to submit Christ to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.